Before we get started, this podcast discusses suicide and death by suicide. If you are struggling or having suicidal thoughts or worried about someone you know, please call triple zero or Lifeline on 13 11 14. It's important to also, I think for me, to put myself in the picture of the universal nature of grief. Yes, this happened to me, but it's happened to lots of people. And some people have gone through worse things than I've gone through. And it'll keep on happening. And that is the nature of life. You can't stop living because you think that that's going to protect you from grieving or protect you from death. It won't. That is all part of the package of life. But the other part of life is there's so much joy. From Women's Health Australia, this is Uninterrupted. I'm Editor-in-Chief Lisa Gebelagen. For as long as broadcaster Indira Naidu can remember, her two sisters have always been by her side. With only a year between each of them, they were inseparable, almost like triplets. For almost 50 years, they shared every moment of their lives with one another, until Indira's younger sister, Manika, took her own life. In this episode, Indira talks to our executive editor, Kara Byers, about the impact her sister's death has had on her, which she writes about in her new book, The Space Between the Stars, her grief journey, and how she found solace and healing in urban nature, including an unlikely connection with a 100-year-old fig tree and looking to the night sky. Your book is called The Space Between the Stars, and um, obviously it deals with the incredibly heartbreaking loss of your sister. I love the storytelling in the book because it um, sets you guys up as like three musketeers um, and there's Dreamcatcher and then there's Stargirl who you lost. And what's your name? I didn't give myself a name. I guess as the narrator, I was seeing the world from my eyes, you know, so I didn't need to give myself a name and I, I haven't actually thought of one. And it's interesting because a number of people who have read the book keep saying, well, what name would you give yourself? So I don't know. I've never really thought about it. Uh, other people have said, you know, they've come up with their own name. So maybe I can leave that up to the reader. But I think it, it requires someone else to give you a name in a way, you know, because you can't see the way other people see you. So tell us about your sister, Stargirl. <laughs> Uh, she was a one in a million. She was dynamic and charismatic and daring and uh, courageous and a brilliant mind. She was a wonderful dancer, a wonderful cook. She wrote beautifully. I guess that's why I don't think of myself as a wonderful writer because she really was a beautiful writer, a wonderful editor. Uh, she was a Walkley winning journalist. So she was just quite brilliant really um you always knew when she was in the room she was dynamic she had the most amazing smile big mouth big teeth and um yeah she was a presence she was a force yeah she really comes across that way in the book um I love some of the little stories that you tell in the book about um like when you're playing Marco Polo in the pool and um there's another one about when you're at the cricket as children so would you mind telling that story again yeah we were huge well we are huge cricket fans and as kids we often went to the cricket and the grounds just by ourselves without our parents we would pack our picnic basket and our thermos get our tickets and just 
you know, the three of us would go off to the cricket together. And this particular summer, the West Indies were touring Tasmania and often they didn't come. So we were just so excited. They were the best cricket team in the world in the 1970s. So we were so excited and they were so charismatic. You know, they were tall and they were black and we were just so excited to be there. And because we were living in Tassie at the time in the 70s, there weren't a lot of other dark-skinned people around. So when we were sitting in the stands watching the cricket and we were waiting for autographs and we'd taken our autograph books and the kids around thought we were somehow related to the West Indian players because we were black as well. Monica was really naughty and there was this one moment where she went up to the fence to get an autograph for the West Indian fielder and the kids came round to her and said, oh, you know, are you related to any of the West Indies cricket players? And she told a little fib and said that she was. And then they said, who? And then she had to make that up as well. And she went, uh, Viv Richards, who was the greatest player at the time, he's my dad. And then they got really excited and they said, well, if you're Viv Richards' daughter, can we get your autograph? She started signing their autograph books, Monica Richards, and I saw her doing it and I yanked her in a way and I told her off and I said, Monica, you can't pretend to be Vivian Richards' daughter. And uh, I told her I was going to tell my parents, but I didn't tell them at the time because I thought uh, it wasn't really that naughty. And when I was writing the story, I realised that in a way it was quite an amazing thing to do for a little kid, to be so daring, to pretend to be someone like that. And then all those kids had her autograph and you know, that made them feel special that they had a famous person's autograph in their book and they would have told everyone and maybe they still have those autograph books. And And I say in the book, you know, maybe she made them feel really special and that wasn't such a bad thing that she did after all. Maybe it wasn't that naughty. What would you say bonded you guys together? Just being so close in age, there was only one year between us. So I, as I say, it was like being triplets, but you know, being separate three entities, I guess. And then we moved around a lot as a family. So we were often in new schools, new cities, new countries where we didn't know anyone. We hadn't, we had to make new friends. And so we were the fallback guys, you know, at lunchtime when we didn't have any friends and we had someone, needed someone to hang out with. There were the two sisters were there to hang out with. So it was like a ready-made gang always, you know, you didn't really need to feel that you were alone or you had to find friends because you had your sisters to hang around with. So you could play tennis together and you can go play marbles and go bike riding. I mean, we did everything together. So much of what I experienced, I realised when my sister died, she experienced too. There were only two other people that shared the same memories I did. So it was even more devastating in a way because I'd lost one of these critical sources of memory of my life as well because every story, which is even for siblings, it's unusual to tell. Every story I could tell, she was there, you know, she was there through everything, you know, whether we were um, first day to school or, you know, the boy, you know, I may, may have liked, she was there at school, uh, whatever crazy thing we were doing after school, cooking together, you know, hanging out in the garden, every experience, it was. it's very unusual to have two people that share all of that with you. So I sort of felt like I'd lost part of my memory. So writing the book was my attempt, I think, to remember, particularly the beautiful stories, because, of course, when you're going through grief and you've lost someone like this so suddenly and in such a terrible, catastrophic way, there's a lot of darkness, there's a, there's a lot of sadness and I needed to balance it up. I needed to remember the fun parts, the funny bits because 
we did such crazy things. And she was so much fun and so naughty. So writing those stories was an important way for me to remember and remind myself of what's happened. And also for Monica's daughter, I think it's going to be a lovely record for her to know parts of her mum as a little girl. And um, was Monica, or Stargirl as she's called in the book, was she just like that throughout her life? From day one. If she didn't want to go to school, she didn't go to school. If she didn't want to do a homework, she didn't. Because she was so cute, she had the prettiest little face and the cutest dimples, she got away with everything. You know, she didn't want to do something, our folks would say, okay, Indira and Saray, you do it for Monica instead or you help her with that or she doesn't have to do that. Poor baby, you know. She really did get away a lot. Talking about your experience of grief, how has your grief changed and and morphed in that time? It was interesting, Cara, because I was rereading the book and part of the reason I wanted to write the book in my grief is, first of all, I really thought it would be a great way to heal me because writing for me has always been a way to clear my head and I had to find the language because I couldn't share it with anyone until I found the word for whatever I was feeling. So writing really helped, even though it was extremely traumatic to write actually, but it did help. But when I read back what I wrote then, some of it I remember, but the intensity of that feeling is so different to how I am now. So I'm so glad that I did write it then because I couldn't write through memory. If I had to write that book now about what I felt when it happened, it would be a completely different book. Uh, I look look back on it and read it and go, wow, that was really full-on grief you felt. And if I didn't have the book, I wouldn't really remember the depth of it and and how debilitating it was and and how it just sort of blindsided me. Uh, So I really captured the intensity of that loss and the emotion of that time. It's very different to what I'm feeling now. Now I dip in and out of it, you know, mostly uh, it's just a normal day and then something will just plunge me into some sorrow and melancholy. Uh, Someone shares one of their griefs with me and it reminds me of my grief. But I think that that will just mellow over the years as this was my first big grief in my life and the people who've had big griefs have said that's what happens. You, You never completely forget. You never get over a grief uh, ever it just mellows into this thing that you sorrow that you it sits with you wherever you go so what I've been trying to do is understand that my do come from the place where I want to fix things and I want to solve them and sort them out it can be very frustrating if you have that attitude to grief because it's not like that it just can't be fixed overnight it can't be fixed on a, a timetable You have to do it in your own pace when you feel ready. And, you know, this is a sort of book where you may not be ready to pick it up today, but you might feel you can pick it up in six months or a year. Uh, It it depends on your own pattern and and what you need and when you need the healing. And for me, I realise that I've always got to be mindful of it, you know, because it is, it's always going to be like a, a, like a wound with a, the, the scab formed over it, but other things can pick that scab open or the, the, the stitches can re-tear depending on what's going on in your life. So you've got to be mindful of it and keep holding on to joy, you know, and that's where the love of nature has helped me because this morning I just did a lovely walk to my tree and, and sort of sat with it and just said, I'm just warning you, there are going to be a few people coming and visiting you, a few fans that want to meet you. <laughs> people have already said, where is this tree and we want to see it? So I thought I should just go and warn it. There's going to be a lot of interest, you know. 
And just being with that tree again reminded me of that very first day I stumbled across it and sat with it and I was in such deep trauma. I couldn't say anything to anyone. It was just so full on. And the great thing about the tree is I didn't need to. I could just sit with it. It didn't ask me anything. It didn't say, hey, what's wrong with you? What's up with you? Why are you just hanging around me? It was so comforting. And the solace I got from just being able to be is such an important part of grief. Realise at the time that the pressure that you feel to sometimes, how do I explain this to someone else? You know, they feel uncomfortable. They don't know what to say to you. And so when you, with a tree, especially one as special as mine, 150 years old, it has seen it all. So it it's going, you, you know, you think this is a pandemic. I was there in 1918. And it's like, of course you were. Wow. Um, you've seen so much death. It saw all the soldiers leaving off the wharves. It overlooks Willamaloo to go to the First World War. It saw all the broken people returning and all the people who didn't come back. It has seen so much grief and so many tears. It's still there. It's still standing. It's still supporting. It's still resilient. And it just reminded me, you know, that's a good lesson in what death and life and, and the and the sort of cycle of life is. A tree shows you that. It loses its leaves. It grows some new ones. People come. People go. And it's important to also, I think, for me to put myself in the picture of the universal nature of grief. Yes, this happened to me, but it's happened to lots of people. And some people have gone through worse things than I've gone through. And it'll keep on happening. And that is the nature of life. You can't stop living because you think that that's going to protect you from grieving or pr protect you from death. It won't. That is, that is all part of the package of life. But the other part of life is there's so much joy you know, that little puddle, that feather you find. I go on these hikes and I discover all these beautiful bits of my urban nature with nature guides. It just kept reminding me how much joy there is. Even in loss, I could hang out with a little weed and go, how, how are you surviving? Where are you getting your food from? And it just reminded me again, that's resilience. That's a survivor. That's what I want to be. So the lessons are all around. All you have to do is stop looking at your device and be still and be quiet and nature will just give you all the lessons you need. It, it was quite a revelation for me because these were bits of nature that I'd walked and trampled over every other day and suddenly they were precious. I didn't want to put a step on the ants, you know. Suddenly everything became so precious. How did it feel to rediscover that, to see those things through different eyes? Did you feel changed or did you just think because you could slow down that you saw that? I felt changed. I do. I felt like I'd taken off some sort of blocking goggles and now I was seeing things more clearly for the first time. Even though I love, I've always loved nature, I get it. I get the beauty of nature. I didn't understand at this molecular level how it could actually get under my skin and I could feel part of it, completely a part of it, so that it moves in and out of my body and through my veins. I, I, I haven't ever experienced that part of nature before. Nature to me now is so innate in me. It is, um, I obviously, I am part of it. I'm not separate from it at all. You know, I just morph into it and it morphs into me. I don't know when I where I stop and it begins. Yeah, a lot of people, um, when you read about grief and, and talk to people who've had huge episodes of grief in their life, talk about one of the takeaways is always that feeling of oneness and that the small stuff really doesn't matter. People always seem to go to love, like I just said, that feeling of oneness. 
which you seem to have done a lot. And you also recruited a lot of experts. Yeah, I guess that's part of my training as a journalist. You know, if I'm trying to understand something, I seek out people who know. I could look at a cloud and I can just connect with it through that. But I wanted to understand more. Why does it form like that? And why does looking at a cloud amaze me so? Why does it make me just feel so joyous and I I wanted to understand the why of those connections to nature. So, yes, I found specialists in uh, psychologists who understood the shape of nature and why a tree and a cloud is actually made up of the same fractals, the same patterns of big becoming small and little and how comforting and relaxing that is for us to visually see it, how nature is all about curves and arcs and folds and bends, no hard lines, no pokey things, no spiky things, why that's hardwired into our DNA and we immediately feel comforted when we're sitting next to a babbling brook or under the shade of a tree. Why do we like that so much? So I wanted to understand and, yeah, there's so many beautiful experts that don't only get it on the human level but they've studied it as well. So I went hunting with a feather specialist to collect lots of feathers who explained what a, what a feather is, what it does, how it is so strong but it's so soft and how I could learn from that resilience. I went um, on ant walks with an entomologist, so many varieties of ants that I've just step on every day in the footpath, so many different colours and sizes and just extraordinary, their, their world and their life. And, you know, most of them only live six to seven days. And here I was grief struck because I only had 48 years with my sister thinking I was robbed and I should have had more. And I'm thinking, how would I feel if I was an ant? Six, seven days, what would I do? Oh, my gosh. Wow. And they do everything and they busily go around and do everything and they, you know, and the other thing too is that they feed on bits of rubbish, you know, bits of thrown away takeaway food or bird droppings, you know, so they find the debris and they find the gold in it and they make it into something special, which is helpful when you're going through grief because you can focus on the things you've lost rather than the things that you have and that you've gained. And again, when you connect with nature and you watch how nature lives and how it is, it reminds you that these are lessons that you can take on board as humans into your life as well, that life is unpredictable. We, we, we make plans, but like nature, they know you only have now. That's the only thing you know you have. And then when you think, oh, you know, how can this happen? Why did it happen? That's nature. Life is part of death. It's part of life. They all just come and go together. We're in the queue. We're in the death queue. But we try not to think about it. You know, we don't think about death enough. Obviously, we don't think about grief uh, enough as well. But I think once we do, it makes us live for the moment, which is all we actually know we have. And uh, nature is there teaching us these lessons all the time. Obviously, your whole view on life has completely changed. Were you always in the now? Not completely changed because I think not always. I, I am a bit in the future, I have to admit. I'm a big planner and always thinking next, what do I want to do? Where do I want to go? Who do I want to see? That has changed quite a bit, Cara. Yeah, I do try to just be right now with you is the only time I know I have. Uh, I might have plans for what I'm going to do for lunch today, but I try not to because just do it when it happens. And then so, yeah, my over planning has reduced 
I'm very appreciative of any time I get with people, which we're all feeling anyway with the pandemic. So if there's a little opening and I can catch up with a friend and have a coffee or have a drink at a bar, I do it and I treasure it because I might not be able to do that for a few more months. So I think all of us have changed in the way we're living because of the pandemic generally. And then when I went through this very personal loss on top of that, it made me a lot more focused on the now. So like this all happened in lockdown and the OG lockdown 2020. And I just wonder if you've got any insights into how that would have changed your experience or, I mean, you have the experience you have, but it was a crazy time. It was surreal anyway. And then to have somebody so close to you to die by suicide, that must have had its moments of not feeling real as well. Absolutely. I actually look back on it and can't quite believe it. It's like a story you would hear and read. And uh, and at the same time, I was hosting a late night uh, overnight radio show. So my audience were going into extreme loss, extreme anxiety. The radio was their only connection. They weren't able to see their friends and family. They were relying on me every night to get them through, to keep them up, to keep them connected. And then I was going through this horrific personal loss at the same time where the last thing I wanted to do was talk to a million people every night who were all really anxious and going through losses. And then in the middle of that, we had border closures. So I couldn't be with my family and friends. We went to my sister's funeral uh, with only 20 people allowed to be at the funeral, which is such a terrible thing to do to family and grieving people to reduce the way you can grieve. That's why funerals are so important. I never quite understood that. To be able to gather with your loved ones and grieve someone, you can't ever do it ever again. You know, that, that it has to be done then. And so for the pandemic to say, sorry, only 20 of you and the other 100, you've got to just do it some other way. And um, I think we're all feeling that. So many people had to go to funerals or miss funerals or miss seeing their loved one who died because they couldn't get across the border. It's a loss that is very, very hard to heal. And you have to realise, though, that it's there. And this is one of the things we do because we all just have to keep on living, particularly during the pandemic. You just push those anxieties to the side and you go, okay, I've got to get on with this. I've got to live. I've got to work. I've got to get money. I've got to get the kids through homeschooling. And so the fact that my mother or my father died in a nursing home and I couldn't see them, I'll deal with that later. And then another thing came up and then we had another uh, variant and then we all couldn't see each other at Christmas. And, you know, so we've piled up a lot of griefs. And eventually we're going to have to open that bag and go, okay, I want to have to deal with that. I need to give my time, self time to grieve. And that's the critical thing. I went to a grief counsellor throughout this whole process and did it very early and very quickly. Everyone has, again, their own time that they're ready to do that. But that really helped me to talk about it as soon as possible. But also giving myself time to grieve. Writing the book helped me grieve. I took a couple of months off my radio show to give myself some time to grieve and to finish writing the book. Uh, we don't give ourselves enough time. We just get back on the horse, let's get on with it. I think it's really important to give yourself time, sit quietly, sit in nature, um, let yourself feel what you're feeling. And it can be overwhelming. It's scary. People don't want to open that bag and look at all those griefs. But when you don't, those griefs start running your life. They start making you make decisions and sometimes bad decisions, emotional decisions. Once you start emptying that grief out and looking at it and 
giving it a hug because the thing about grief, I thought it was a very scary thing before this happened. And now I realize that grief and the depth of your grief is only a reflection of your love. So the more you've loved, the more you will grieve. But loving is a good thing. You can't feel grief if you haven't loved. If, if, so, if you're with a friend who's lost someone and you didn't know them, you're not feeling any grief for that person that's been lost. You're feeling grief for your friend and they're consumed with grief. And I'm always fascinated by that feeling. I don't feel that grief because I didn't love that person. I love my friend, but not that person. So in a way, feeling grief is a privilege because it means you've loved. And that's a beautiful thing because it would be horrible not to feel grief because that would mean that you didn't love anyone. Grief is powerful and it's important and we shouldn't push it away. I want to spend a lot more time exploring grief because it doesn't have to be this dark, heavy, horrible thing that we all fear you know, is going to come for us. We just don't want to handle it because it's not that at all. It's, it's what it's doing is it's just snapping us out of our distracted lives and saying, hang on, who cares what's streaming on Netflix right now? You need to deal with this. That's it. It just pulls you straight into focus of what's really important. And I think that's what we're afraid of. We don't want to sit and think about what's important, but we need to. Some of the observations and insights you've got in your book are incredible and they make you stop and think and actually put the book down and one of them you said is that um, grief is personal and and collective and how it can create a village but um, one of the quotes from the book that has really stuck with me is death doesn't have to be a rip in the universe thinking about that and then thinking about all the things you've discovered as a result of being bereaved um, obviously you already loved nature so much and now you've got your favorite Morton Bay fig and you find solace there. Do you go there daily or? I try to go there as much as I can. So obviously with the heavy rain, I couldn't go there yesterday. So I was desperate today. I just sort of raced in a little gap in the rain and, and went there. But I try to go there about three or four times a week and it's a nice long walk. So it's a whole hour and I try to spend some of it not with you know, my music in my earbuds and just listen to the birds going through the trees and the wind and just the sounds of the water, really immerse myself in the, in the light and the shimmer and then sit a little bit with my tree. So I try to make it a meditation as well as a walk and exercise, you know, so I try to get it all at the same time. So it's a very important part. And I know when I don't do it regularly, I miss my tree. I, I miss it and I'm desperate for it and I can't wait to be reunited with it. I'm trying not to get too attached to the tree because it is 150 years old and I think, well, it might go too. So I try not to get too attached to it and I I try to make sure that I take on board all the other trees that are around too because there's lots of special trees at the Botanic Gardens, not just my one. It is so special to me. It is almost like the point where it touches the earth is this place where all my irons realign in my body. And so when I sit there, everything that seems to be helter-skelter and going in different directions just all comes together and it just flows, you know, in the path it's meant to. Uh, And I don't feel that anywhere else. So obviously we've talked a lot about your tree and all the different things you've discovered on Earth, like birds, feathers, ants. But also, I mean, the book is called The Space Between the Stars and you do also look to the night sky would, I, would you say for extra solace or for more meaning? I the where, where the title came from, The Space Between the Stars, is from Indigenous uh, Dreaming. So 
First Nations people don't only look at country as the land and the sea, they look at the sky as sky country. And I was reading about that uh, during just all my general reading about nature while I was going through this. And it quite blew me away because of course it makes sense you know we we because we're land-based creatures we think of land and sea but there's all this sky as well that has all this amazing nature in it from the stars and the sun and the moon and the clouds and the air and everything of course it's got another specialness to it and then at night time wow when it sparkles and those stars come out and that inky blackness of the sky it is so magical uh, I don't look up enough. I didn't look up enough. You know, we're distracted by lights and neon and what's going on again on our phones. But if you just look up and look at the sky, even in the city, the sparkles and the things that you can see is just so magical. And for me, each one of those stars is our system. You know, it has a sun just like us, maybe has people and humans on it. Who knows if we'll find that sort of life anywhere else. But all these other little solar systems and and galaxies in the universe and so what I found is that what I was going through just seemed like yeah that's my experience but then there's a bigger one than me and then there's a bigger one and a bigger one and again it's like that pattern of fractals that Branka was talking about you're just one little thing and then there's more and more and more getting bigger and bigger and bigger for me that didn't make me feel minute and not mattering it made me feel that there was this amazing big life in existence all around me that I just had never noticed before and had been around way before me and was going to be around way after I disappeared as well. And it was so pretty and so beautiful. And the spaces between the stars that I could see also had stars in them. They were just further away that I couldn't see. And those inky blacknesses that you think are nothingness are actually filled with light. But we look at them as black places. And I just love that way of looking at the night sky in a different way and realising it's not only about the stars, which are beautiful, but those dark places also have light. But it's just that we can't see them or we don't know how to see them. So that's like an analogy for grief. Possibly, yeah. Because we do find it um, scary and dark and we don't know how to make sense of it, but it can be full of wonder. Absolutely. Actually, the other thing I really loved about that part of your book is, and this, I'm just going to expose myself as being completely ignorant here, which is fine because I've got a lot to learn, but it was so amazing to realize that Indigenous Australians have got all these explanations for the stars, the way the ancient Greeks and Romans did, Um, because I'm from the Northern Hemisphere, so obviously I've grown up with all of that. And then when I moved here and saw, oh, it's a completely different constellation and, um, now I feel like more connected because I know that the story to go with that. Honestly, I'm learning more myself. There's a beautiful new book by an Indigenous astronomer. He explains all those night sky constellations and all the dreaming stories behind it. And it's all connected too. So even think something like Uluru and different craters around it were created by stars that fell out of the sky and crashed into the earth. So they've got beautiful, beautiful stories that explain it. But but again, so much of this planet we don't understand. And even where my tree is, that was a really important gathering meeting place for the Indigenous tribes in the Sydney Basin. And when I would sit there, I could feel that power. I know why they, they selected that area. It is a precious point. 
And so, um, yeah, as much as I can, I'm trying to learn and, and understand more about Indigenous growing and Indigenous landscape and the connection to land because, you know, what we're seeing going on now with climate change and our cities being flooded, as Indigenous people have said, we could have told you not to build there and that was going to be a floodplain. That's why we didn't put our camps there. We went on the mountains, but the early settlers ignored those warnings, uh, ignored the experience and the wisdom of the people that had been there and lived through it and understood. So we do it to our own detriment and hopefully that is starting to change. We're starting to understand more about Indigenous knowledge and incorporating that into our lives as well. You feel more connected and you feel, you see more wonder in the world. Has it helped you make sense of why we behave the way we do? We've got such big brains, humans, and we spend a lot of time finding food to feed it. It actually takes up almost just over the third of the food that we consume to feed our brain. So every day we get up, our brain is telling us, make sure you keep me well and feed me and look after me. It actually is a very unusual balance compared to most creatures on the planet. So the bigger our brain gets, it becomes more of a problem for us rather than the solution that we think it's going to be. So it's not only, it doesn't bring us the knowledge that we think or the awareness or the understanding. It's just another, oh, I've got to find another two kilos of leaves now to feed into this braining of more meat, you know, or whatever. So I've been talking to a few biologists about it and I find it really fascinating. So for me, it's almost reducing. It's reducing ourselves and simplifying, you know, rather than where we think we're the best, we're the top of the apex of, you know, all the creatures on the planet. We know because we're bigger, we're faster, no predators above us. And we've made ourselves think that we should be fearful of everything else, you know, fearful of sharks, fearful of spiders, um, fearful of the flood. We've created all of that. You know, we've created all the fear ourselves. We've created everything that is now destroying us because we've got these ridiculous big brains that we're not actually using because we spend most of their time just trying to find the fuel to keep it going. Nature, I can't emphasise it enough. If we just stop and immerse ourselves in nature, it is the answer. Nature is telling us all the time, you know, what we should do. That tree I say in the book, in this terrible storm we had last year, those storms I hid in my apartment and I couldn't go out. I didn't go anywhere. I couldn't do anything. It was pretty full on. That tree, when I visited it two weeks later, it was still standing. It was still strong. And that time it had nurtured and protected all these other creatures and animals, probably a homeless person or two as well. It didn't have to, it couldn't run or move. It didn't couldn't go to the supermarket and get toilet paper and food. It had to get it all from its roots. It had to just get all its food, you know, through the sun. And it stayed in the one place all that time. And here I was thinking, hey, I'm a human. I've got it all over you. I can run and go anywhere I want. I can fly. I can sail. I can whatever. I didn't do any of those things. I just stayed home. And this tree was planted in the one spot, anchored there, and it got everything it needed. It didn't need to go anywhere else. And it survived. And it weathered the storm out in the open, unlike me. Why do I think that I've got it all over a tree? I mean, this tree is superb. I mean, I want to be more like the tree, as I say in the book. And I think that once we change that way of thinking that we're superior, uh, the way we used to look at trees, no, 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 they're superior. They can actually teach us. Look at what they can do all by staying in the same spot. If we stayed in the same spot, we would die. I don't know. It's For me, it's just mind-blowing. It's totally mind-blowing because it's just right there. 
And we just don't look at it enough and realise it could be a lot easier. (laughs) Yeah, it's just been a a glorious revelation, you know, this whole journey. And I never thought I would fall more in love with my sister, more in love with my community, more in love with nature from my grief. I never thought that that would be the pathway into it, but that's where it's taken me. Thank you to Indira and Kara for that beautiful conversation. If you are struggling or having suicidal thoughts or worried about someone you know, please call 000 or Lifeline on 13 11 14. This episode of Uninterrupted was hosted by Kara Byers and produced by me, Lisa Gebilagan, with additional sound editing by Abby Williams. For more from Women's Health Australia, pick up a copy of our latest issue with pregnant celebrity trainer Tiffany Hall on the cover, where she talks about why she's rejected the idea of bouncing back after giving birth. You can find it on newsstands or digitally via Zinio and Apple News+. Plus. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.